The third part of our discussion with Sir Brian Urquhart today will focus on developments in the role of the United Nations in peacekeeping. The notion of international peacekeeping forces was virtually unknown before the establishment of the United Nations in 1945. During his career with the United Nations, Sir Brian Urquhart helped to define the role of the United Nations in peacekeeping through his involvement in the first 13 United Nations peacekeeping operations. Sir Brian, I would like to ask you to share your views concerning major developments in the role of UN peacekeeping, the unique characteristics of UN peacekeepers, the requirements for a successful UN peacekeeping operation, and the future of UN peacekeeping. I thought we could first talk about developments in UN peacekeeping, beginning with Palestine. The Arab-Israeli War of 1948 led to the establishment of the first UN peacekeeping operation. What were the main elements of this operation and how did it contribute to the development of UN peacekeeping operations? Well, there were two uh, military observer operations established in 1948. One, as you rightly say, in Palestine and one in Kashmir. Well, the first war over Kashmir was in 1948 and a, uh, a ceasefire line um, uh, was, was established, which is sti still there, unfortunately, which was uh, observed and monitored by UN military observers who are also still there. I mean, the, 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 this, this has gone on a very long time. Uh, and these were, these were unarmed uh, single military observers with, uh, and their, their sole function was to monitor and to report. And occasionally, if they could do it, to get the sides together to resolve some local situation, which they sometimes in those days could do. Uh, I think that was important because it established the principle of a, an impartial uh, observer, a UN observer, who was not going to let either side get an advantage out of a ceasefire and was going to report and try to get action from the Security Council on violations of the ceasefire. And Ralph Bunch wrote the, the um, standing orders uh, for the uh, Palestinian observers. And it really, to some extent, was, a, was, a, was a, a, a sort of first draft of the arrangements we made later on for peacekeeping forces. Now, the first one of those, of course, was the, the peacekeeping, the United Nations Emergency Force, which was put together, first of all, to get the British and French forces out of Egypt in 1956. And secondly, um, to get Israel out uh, of Sinai, because those three countries who were part of the Suez operation had all invaded Egyptian territory. Uh, nobody really thought this would work. And Hammarskjöld, uh, we all had a shot at writing or giving ideas about um, this brand new peacekeeping force, something that wasn't in the Charter, something uh, uh, that was completely the opposite of Chapter 7 of the Charter, which is about using conventional military forces in a fully warlike situation. Uh, this uh, it was about using conventional forces, not from the permanent members of the Security Council, but from other states, in a situation where they cannot use their arms except in self-defense and I suppose really merely to keep the peace between two sides and allow the two sides to carry out the withdrawals or whatever it is that the Security Council has ordered. Um, 
Hammarskjöld uh, wrote, wrote the, this famous document, uh, which is called the second and final report of the Secretary General on the plan for an emergency international United Nations force requested in the resolution adopted by the General Assembly on 4, Nove General Assembly on 4 November 1956. He wrote this uh, unaided entirely by himself, and as, I, as you rightly say, I said that it was a conceptual masterpiece because it put together in language that everybody could accept what the nature of this new uh, instrument of the UN was actually to be. Now, unfortunately, because the British and French vetoed it, uh, the, this was all done in the General Assembly. They vetoed any suggestion that they should withdraw from the Suez, though they very shortly did. And so the thing was transferred under the Atchison Plan, which I mentioned in an earlier lecture, uh, from the uh, veto-paralyzed Security Council, this time of two Western powers, to the General Assembly. And the uh, United Nations Emergency Force was set up by the Secretary General at the request of the General Assembly. And this turned out in 1967 to land the, the Secretary General in an unbelievably impossible position. Uh, when Egypt demanded the withdrawal of this force, which it had perfect right to do, this was Egyptian territory, Sinai, and Uthant uh, was caught between a rock and a hard place. The Security Council couldn't agree on anything. I mean, they couldn't even agree what day of the week it was, and, and, uh, and so he was stuck with the decision, which he had to make legally, to, to withdraw the first emergency force. Uh, UNEF was a very important in setting the pattern for further forces, and Hammarskjöld spent a great deal of time making sure that, uh, that this was documented. He spent a lot of time, for example, uh, negotiating with President Nasser a status of force agreements with Egypt, which defined the relationship and the obligations of the force and the government of Egypt. Uh, that was extremely important because, among other things, it allowed uh, the soldiers of the force, if they were arrested by the Egyptian police while on leave for some infraction of the law, uh, to be uh, tried in their own countries for, for that. And this was a huge, even NATO didn't have this, so it was an extremely important uh, some, uh, legacy to hand down. And I think that one of UNEF's, I mean, it did preserve peace in what had been a particularly bloody part of the world for nearly 10 years between Egypt and Israel. But it did, and it also provided a pattern for future operations. And it got the soldiers of, in the end, something like about 12 or 15 countries, I think, used to the idea of taking part in UN operations under the UN flag under the orders of uh, a UN commander and uh, an operation in which they could not use their arms except in self-defense, which for a soldier is a pretty major step, whichever way you think of it, either forward or back. So it was an experiment which worked very well. Uh, it got uh, the British and the French out and saved their faces to a considerable extent. It got Israel out a little later on and it did preserve peace for 
something like 10 years before it blew up, when NASA asked to be, um, asked it to be withdrawn. On October 6, 1973, Egyptian forces crossed the Suez Canal, which was the beginning of the October War. This led to the establishment of UNEF-2. In your memoirs, you indicate that UNEF-2 constituted a major breakthrough in peacekeeping operations and became a standard for setting up new operations. Well, uh, UNEF-2 was a very interesting example of two things. One is that when you get a really serious threat of an east-west confrontation over a regional conflict, the UN sometimes can fill the gap and, 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 and ward it off. And the other thing is that if you have a really critical situation, you can sometimes establish a number of precedents which you couldn't conceivably do if everything was quiet and, and, and uh, like home. I mean, it, 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 it's very difficult when people don't feel threatened to get them to do something new. But when they do feel threatened, it's possible to move. The, 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 Changes we made in that, and we wrote all of the documents for that particular and extremely urgent situation. What happened was that the uh, front, when the ceasefire was finally taken on, it looked like a dollar sign. You had the, the Suez Canal down the middle, and then you had the Israeli army over a part which went down to, 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 the, to the end of the canal, the, the, the Red Sea end. And then over the canal in this way, you had the Egyptians. So you had a thing like an S, and it was very shaky. And of course, it kept getting violated by one side or the other. And this was very serious because at that point, the Soviet Union suggested to the United States that they should join in forcefully removing uh, Israeli forces from Sinai. But you can imagine how well that went down. Uh, and th at that point, uh, the United States declared the highest nuclear that's ever declared DEFCON 3, I think it was. It had never done this before. Uh, all right, this was kissing and gesturing and everything, but it's a gesture which could easily end in tears. Uh, the non-aligned group in the Security Council, headed by Yugoslavia, which again in, is, is sort of ironical, uh, demanded that the Council immediately set up a peacekeeping force to reinforce the ceasefire. That is to get in there and make sure that you didn't have local violations ending with a kind of complete revoking of the ceasefire and with all the possible consequences of intervention, uh, both from, from uh, Russia and from the United States. Uh, and we had got all the suggestions for this uh, sort of written, more or less, the night before, because we thought this would probably happen. So we were able to put forward a plan extremely quickly. And one of the things that we did, previous peacekeeping operations had never included uh, a Soviet or Soviet bloc troops, which I always thought was a great mistake since the Soviets, after all, were a permanent member of the Security Council. It might do them good to see this kind of operation. But it, they, there were some Soviet observers in the, no, there weren't. This was Kissinger's idea. There were, they weren't even in the observer groups. So uh, we suggested that we should have, because um, we had to suggest the 
people who were going to produce the forces, largely people who actually could produce forces very quickly. And we suggested that a, a member of the Soviet bloc, namely Poland, should provide a contingent. And that made the, the Soviets were very happy with this, so that they, were, that they didn't, in principle, approve of peacekeeping, which they said was against the Charter. Uh, they actually voted, didn't vote against it. So we got a, f a force voted on very quickly as a result of this. Um, we had previously told the UN force in Cyprus, which, where everything was quiet for the time being, to get two battalions ready to fly immediately to Sinai to start the... F and we actually had them in the air about five hours after the Security Council resolution, so that in the morning when one got the usual calls from ambassador saying, will you please hurry up and get this peacekeeping force on the ground? We said, well, actually, they're landing this very minute. And they said, what? And this was very successful. This was a record. It was 17 hours after the, the resolution was adopted. They were on the ground. And they were the Finns, so that they were full of zip and zingo and were taking on all comers with all sorts of demonstrations. They were very successful. So that was that. And that was important because, it, 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 first of all, it, it, it removed this fearful sort of ban on, on the Soviet bloc, which I think was a huge mistake to begin with. And it also, we also included in the mandate that the, they could use force only in self-defense or to prevent a move which would stop them doing their duties, which was quite different which meant that they were being interfered with, they theoretically could use force. And it did make it much more convincing. And that got through. I don't know how that got through. I'm not sure anybody even noticed it. But it has made a great difference. It, it means that you're not, they aren't quite as, uh, as unforceful as they had been before. Let's talk about the Congo. You played a major role in the UN peacekeeping operations in the Congo. In fact, you were kidnapped, beaten, and nearly lost your life in that operation, which underscores the dangers faced by UN personnel. Can you describe the main elements of this UN peacekeeping operation in the Congo and its impact on peacekeeping operations? Well, I, quite inadvertently, uh, the Congo operation was the first operation, A, within the borders of one country, because theoretically peacekeeping was was, was was keeping two conflicting governments apart. But in the Congo, it was only one. And it was also, it turned out to be a, a very large civilian operation because the, the Belgians had not taught the Congolese to run the government. And when the, all the Belgians left after the mutiny of the army, uh, it was a sort of like the Marie Celeste. It was a ship without a crew. I mean, the the hospitals didn't have any doctors, the telephone exchanges weren't manned, the police had vanished, the, uh, the control tires in the airport weren't manned, and so on. It was a real mess. And we had to take it, all of that on. We had not realized this, I must have, when we got into it. I, this, was a, this was Doug Hammarskjöld for the first time in history invoking Article 99, which says the Secretary General can bring to the attention of the Council uh, a situation endangering international peace and security. Um, 
And we did a, a Hammarskjöld got the round of the fourth up in the four hours between 1 a.m. and 5 a.m. after the Security Council adopted this resolution in the middle of July in 1960. And he actually had, he decided he would have all African troops to begin with. And in those days, uh, some of the African countries had quite large standing armies. And he got Ghanaians, Nigerians, Tunisians, and Ethiopians to put battalions on the airport to be picked up the next, in the following days by the uh, United States Transport, uh, Transport Service, which is a huge global encircling transport mechanism. And also the Soviet Union flew in the Ghanaian troops. The thing about the Congo was it was the richest and I think the largest African country, or maybe it's the second largest to Sudan. Uh, it was hugely rich in minerals. It had two very large uh, strategic NATO airports. Um, it, it was a main source of uranium. Uh, and it was thought that if it, it, uh, and there was a great fear that if one superpower decided to try to take it over, the other one would certainly fight it. And it was perfectly true, both the Soviet Union and the United States were not prepared to let the other take over. So they both wanted the UN to take it over to avoid, it was very sensible it seems to me, the, the Soviet Union was dead in favor of this to begin with. Uh, the whole essence of this was speed because the mutiny had created a complete shambles in the administration. Um, nothing was happening. And I know I went uh, off with two or three other people the day after this resolution was passed. And we had no time, to, except for packing, which was pretty rudimentary, we had no time to get briefed or anything. I was under the impression that the Congo was on the Indian Ocean for some reason. And I was much put out when I discovered when we got there it was on the Atlantic. That is the degree of preparation we had for this operation. We got there, I think, within 48 hours of the resolution. It was quite difficult to get there because the, all airlines had stopped flying to the Congo because the situation was too rough. And we finally got, I finally got there about the 16th of July. Uh, and for the first three months, this was a miraculous success. The African troops were very good. Uh, they were very good in, in dealing with the mutiny, which was uni universal. There were, no, there were no Congolese officers in the, in the Congolese army, not one, which meant that so if all the officers fled in panic, there was an officerless army, very largely, very often drunk or on drugs, and it was extremely dangerous. And we managed to fan out over this huge country, it's the size of Western Europe, with excellent soldiers, and they did manage to calm it all down, and then we got a lot of civilians in to get the administration working again. It's a very complex, or was a very complex, technically complex country run by a whole network of airlines, river traffic, and railways. And uh, none of these were manned. I mean, they were just abandoned. Uh, they, what we hadn't foreseen was two things. Uh, first, that the, the richest province, Katanga, would secede. European and American interests had huge investments in Katanga. It was a place which was called indecently rich in minerals. 
there was one uh, gold mine there which had a 10% impurity in the gold, and the impurity was tin, which is even more valuable than gold. I mean, it was that kind of place. And um, so the recession of Katanga created a problem we hadn't envisaged at all. And we found ourselves trying to remain neutral in a domestic dispute which had everything to do with the future stability of the country. So we got there with the best of intentions, thinking to, it, it, to train the Congolese army, uh, man the administration, and teach Congolese to run it, and put down mutinies and all sorts of uh, disorders of one sort or another. The Karangese secession really put a stop to that because it was a tremendously important part of the Congo and the central government could not afford to let it go. Then we had Ambas uh, uh, Prime Minister Lumumba, who is an extremely volatile character, who is very, very difficult to deal with. Um, and then the worst thing, uh, for three months, things seemed to be going all right. Uh, and in even the most uh, uh, reactionary papers in the United States said that though they didn't like the UN, this was absolutely amazing. So we were all rather pleased with ourselves. And then, unfortunately, the whole thing blew up on Cold War lines. Uh, the president fired the prime minister, Patrice Lumumba, for in doing something really terrible, which was to, in, to send the Congolese army into the diamond state, Kathai, in the middle of the Congo, to put down what turned out to be the Baluba tribe, which was the richest and most developed tribe in the Congo. And there were a great number, uh, there was a massacre. And the president then fired Lumumba, who then fired the president. Which, uh, and there was a, a certain amount of legal argument as to who had the right to do what, but it didn't really matter. What you had was the country split in, in, into two factions, one backed by the United States, one backed by the Soviet Union. So you had a Cold War uh, internal situation. It was terrible, with the UN in the middle and the Security Council unable to agree on anything. And Hammerschild, I think quite rightly, very courageously took this on, and we did the best we could. Uh, and incurred the wrath of the United States, the Soviet Union, France, Britain, and so on. The people who really were on the whole rather, rather stable were the new African countries who did not like the idea of a complete meltdown in a, an extremely large and very important country in the middle of Africa. And I must say that on the whole they were very helpful, uh, not so the great powers. and. Uh, this was a, a, a series of terrible problems. Uh, Lumumba, who was under a UN protection in Elizabethville, in, uh, unfortunately believed his own people's propaganda. And in the middle of a thunderstorm, uh, when everybody on the other side was celebrating the General Assembly's United States manufactured decision to recognize the president rather than the prime minister, Lumumba escaped from UN protection and went on a kind of a, 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 kind of a, a sort of primary campaign all around the country, whipping up support. We didn't interfere in that because we knew that he would accuse us of interfering. And unfortunately, he was then arrested by the soldiers of General Mobutu, 
who up to that point had been his major chief of staff, uh, and he was assassinated. And that made the whole thing into a world ideological nightmare. Uh, I mean, there were demonstrations all over the world. People burned down American embassies. Uh, Hammarskjöld was accused of murdering the prime minister, which is the, he's the only person who really had tried to, to support and protect Lumumba and so on. And we had a very, very serious situation. Uh, and then on top of that, uh, the whole thing of Katanga became very acute. Uh, and uh, uh, action being demanded. Uh, we had by that time quite a lot of troops in Katanga. And unfortunately they tried, when Hammarskjöld announced he was going over to talk with everybody and, and to try to negotiate between Katanga and the central government, uh, the soldiers in uh, the Katanga thought they would try to have a present for him, and so they went after all the Belgian mercenaries in Katanga and got into a, tre a tremendously messy battle in which they lost. If you're going to do something clever, you need to be sure to win. And this meant that Hammarskjöld arrived with a, with, a, with a war going on in the place he was trying to negotiate about. Uh, so he decided that he personally would meet with Moise Chompe, the president of Katanga, and sorted out. And he arranged for Chombe to go to what was then northern Rhodesia uh, to meet him and took off. And we all know what happened, his plane crashed. Um, and that was it. Funnily enough, the Congo is the only operation the UN has ever undertaken which actually fulfilled every single task the Security Council had put to it. It uh, got rid of the foreign troops. It maintained the country with its, within its borders at independence. It uh, did a vast job of training with the Congolese. And it left, in, the whole operation left in 1964 with a democratically elected government, a rather good prime minister, Cyril Adula, and Katanga brought back into the, into the fold again. Uh, unfortunately, it very quickly broke down along the lines we know. But it's interesting, it's the only operation at great cost. We had a lot of casualties, and so did everybody else. And it was extremely rough, I must say. But it, it was the only one that actually worked. It was also the only original peacekeeping operation that worked on civilian and military problems within the boundaries of one state. Dr. Hammarskjöld, we often think of him, we think about the development of the role of the United Nations yeah. in peacekeeping. What was his impact on the role of the United Nations in peacekeeping? Well, enormous, because he was the person who was smart enough to, to actually articulate the concept. And he, had, he was so admired that if Hammarskjöld asked for 800 soldiers tomorrow morning on the airport, they would likely as not be produced. I mean, it, it, none of that can be done anymore. He, was a, he had a... Uh, before he be, sort of things fell to bits at the end, he was an in, he had a huge uh, uh, amount of support in the world, and he was a brilliant negotiator. He was somebody who would always find something that nobody else had thought of to make it possible for people accept to accept some plan. And he was very remarkable, I must say, an extraordinary person. And he he was the person who who really wrote the original text, which is this document 
on what peacekeeping was. Nobody had ever heard of it. It wasn't called peacekeeping then. I mean, peacekeeping crept in, in about 10 years later, I think, as a title. But it was, uh, it was UN emergency forces. And, and, um, and he also was a person who always had his eye on the future, so that he, if he was doing something new, he tried to kind of document it and get it settled so it could be used again. And I think that was extremely important.